0: Welcome to the UATX Forbidding Conversations con- uh, podcast. Today, my host is Dave Fan. Dave is a graduate of Brown University. His former employees employers has been ZocDoc. Deutsche Bank, which as time of recording is still a... still an organization in operation, and is currently a venture, capital- venture capitalist? Correct. In that space. A venture capitalist for Alumni Ventures. He is a recent resident of New Jersey and a first-time father as of this year. Dave's also my friend and I'm really excited for this conversation. So uh, Dave, welcome aboard the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, Harry. It's great to be here and first time I've been a guest on a podcast. So this should be fun. It should be.
0: As you know, the way this conversation usually works out is I'll probably try and walk through your life, see what, pull out things that start that are interesting. And with all things that are interesting, the best place to usually start is the beginning. So maybe you could give us a bit of a background on what it was like as a young Dave, where you grew up, who your family was, your siblings, et cetera.
1: Sure. So I was born in the Bronx back in 1987. My dad was a postdoc there at Albert Einstein Medical, where I was born. Came a few years before, classic American dream immigrant story where... He was one of the first students who came over from China and had a scholarship. So, you know, spent a few years there in New York and then moved out to Jersey where I grew up. Had a pretty idyllic, normal childhood and then went over to Brown for undergrad. That was a unique experience in higher ed. Made a lot of great friends from all around the world. And I guess this is where the path starts to get interesting because you know most of my family are in healthcare they're doctors researchers almost everybody has an md or a phd so i went into brown thinking that i would follow that path but i was quickly disabused of that mo- notion when i took organic chemistry my freshman year that's a notorious difficult weed out course and it did its job with me i <laughs> barely passed so I took that as a sign that I should go and explore, make use of Brown's open curriculum, which I did. And a lot of my friends were raving about this entrepreneurship class taught by a professor there. And I remember as soon as I went into that class, it hit me that you know, this was much more exciting, much better fit for my interests and, and my skills. So I decided to yep. become the black sheep of the family, went and majored in econ, and then you graduated in a time like this, a very bad time to be a new grad looking for a job in 2009. So, you know, I had interned the summer before at Deutsche Bank and just by dumb luck, it didn't go away the way that Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers did. So I had an offer to come back full time, spent a few years there and I kept thinking back to my professor's advice back at Brown. You know, he had been an entrepreneur before. He would always uh, emphasize to us every class that the biggest risk is not taking one. So you know, when I was doing banking, you know, it's one of those things like like hazing in a fraternity where you just it was good for your character building, but not something you want to do forever or do again. So I made the jump into the startup yeah. world, it's, had to go back to the healthcare roots with ZocDoc. Doc. I spent a couple of years there building out the health systems team where went around the country and saw how broken American healthcare system is yeah. and how slow they are to adopt any new technology that would help with patient experience, workflows, et cetera. And I worked at another startup called Shibumi, which was in the enterprise software space, and then almost four and a half years ago, I moved over to the dark side of venture, and that's been an incredible experience been a crazy time for the industry especially the past year or two but gotten to see so many incredible founders building incredible things and it's uh, fun to be a part of. I feel like it's not a real job or work because I I enjoy it. It's something I would do for fun. So I know I just zoomed through it but feel free to dive in wherever you please. Well
0: we've got a lot to work
1: with. I mean the first thing I
0: probably want to start with is talking about you know a migrant myself to this great country, yeah. And but I definitely coming from a place like Australia is a bit different from coming from 1980s China. And I guess you could say, you know, maybe I'm putting words into your mouth, but maybe you had a childhood, an American childhood with Chinese characteristics. And just was wondering if you could expand a little bit on that about what your, you know, maybe give us some stories about what your family's life was like back in China because it's an area, it's a country that we know so little about, I think, considering how much it affects our day-to-day life. So I'd be very interested to sort of learn a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, I would love to talk more about that. And I only really started learning more about my family's history over the past few years. And the reason for that is because I think we're seeing a lot of parallels in America and a lot of the Western world right now to what China went through back in the sixties with the cultural revolution back then you know my my dad was born in 1957 beijing so he got a front row seat to a lot of the craziness and it's one of those parts of history that we need to look back on more and learn more from because we're seeing echoes of it here in supposedly a free liberal open democracy so you know when he was a kid he saw all of the struggle sessions you know his older brother was sent to the countryside. Parents were, or my grandparents were scientists. So they were part of the intelligista, which then became the class that everyone was hating and, and trying to punish and overthrow. So, you know, I learned that my grandfather had been taken in by one of these struggle sessions. And, you know, so many people, right? This happened to millions and millions of people in all sorts of ways, right? Some people were Uh, Some people were killed. Some were disappeared. Some were took their own lives because they couldn't bear the shame of what they went through. You know, just being marched through the streets, being assaulted by everyone. So, yeah, just that that culture of fear, right? And and ever wanting to speak out, and you you can only kind of hide so long before the mob starts to come after you. So, and I didn't really know much about this because I think you know, every parent doesn't want to talk a whole lot about the traumas of where they came from, especially when you go through a period like that. But I think what we saw post 2020 that summer and has a lot of parallels to what went on there. So yeah you know, that that's kind of where my family comes from and I'm I'm very grateful that you know my dad was able to excel and get that scholarship to come over here.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things, which for many people in the West, I think that they, they know a lot about Nazi Germany. They know a Mm -hmm. little bit about Stalinist Russia and then Maoist China is very much. Well, I heard it was bad, but who knows? Because they it's obviously worked because look at them now, you know, they're going, everything is, you know, China, 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 China. Maybe like I've heard this, this is a question as much for me as our audience. Uh, I've heard this term, Maoist struggle
1: session. I know you've mm-hmm. used
0: it a few times. I'm not really familiar with it. Maybe you could put some bones on that question.
1: Yeah, it's basically a mob shouting down a person that they think is a class traitor. Yeah. That's the, the gist of it. And it takes many forms, right? In China, it took a very violent form. And you know, here it's got its own twist because we have a lot more technology. So, And then cancel culture is a part of it. And there's a lot of full circle moments in my life that I've come to appreciate. You know, I actually participated in a struggle session of sorts without knowing it, and this is somewhat related to my interest in UATX and contrasting with Brown and a lot of these quote unquote elite schools and the, the types of educating slash indoctrinating that they do. But you know, back when I started my freshman year, Summer before, actually, I got a letter in the mail inviting me to participate in a pre orientation program that was only for minority students. Forget the language they, that they use, but it was hosted by the Third World Center, which still exists. It's been around since the 70s, yeah. I think, at Brown, which is a center for all non white students. Its mission is to build solidarity in this community. So, you know, I, I had, again, a pretty normal upbringing. I, Don't ever recall having a politicized type of instruction in high school. All my friends were from different races, religions. We all got along great. We gave each other shit. Life was fine that way. It's it's a weird world, even though it wasn't very long ago. But believe it or not, that's how people grew up in in America. So, anyways, I I get this letter in the mail. I didn't think much about it. I just signed up for it because I was excited to start college. And if they were going to give me a chance to move in. A week earlier, why not? Right. So I I sent the letter back and got to move in early. Immediately started making friends. People, some other people had come in to the dorm. But during this week, they had programming every day. It was called the Third World Transition Program. So, yeah. <laughs> I don't know how I'm third world or what I'm transitioning to. I'm just happy to be a call in college like every other person yeah. who shows up on campus. <clears throat> so. You know, the first day we go to the orientation and, you know, looking back on it, it's just, it, what it was. It was a struggle session. You had all these facilitators holding this type of session where, Hey, you know, raise your hand. If you've ever experienced racism, step forward. If you've ever you know, felt like you were in a, a colonized space, yeah. You know, the, the jargon that we're saying permeate yeah. everywhere today. And I remember sitting there it's being so confused by it all. Like, you know, why are people so unhappy here? Uh, These are the best and the brightest. And why are we talking about how we're victims? Like we're sitting here on this nice campus, this top school. I just, I I just didn't get it. Right. I was, I was 17. I didn't know any better. And I found a few other kids who are kind of of that mindset too. So we just decided, Hey, we're not going to show up to any more of this. We're just going to go hang out on our own and just in, enjoy being at college the regular way instead of yeah. doing this but you know unfortunately the reverberations from programs like that have carried on now you know 10 15 years later so even on campus when the rest of the kids moved in for regular orientation i already saw all of the cliques formed you know all the people who went through the twtp third world transition program struggle session, the minority kids, mostly, they would go sit at the dining halls by themselves. And they wouldn't really be making that much new friends, even though they'd already been there for a week longer than everybody else. And I thought that was just so antithetical to the college experience, you're there to meet people from different backgrounds, to learn from them to have dialogue. And that you know, programs like this, cause segregation. And It just felt so bizarre to me. But now seeing how history has played out recently, it all makes sense now, right? This is something that's firmly embedded in the orthodoxy of a lot of these universities.
0: Why do you think people find these ideas so attractive, both as provider of like a supplier of victimhood and a demander of victimhood?
1: Good question. I think, well, first as a species, we human beings are very tribal. So, when you can band together like that and share some kind of experience, both you know physically being there as well as then you know calling this you know going back hundreds of years, sixteen, nineteen project to say that you know, you've been part of this oppression for longer than you ever know, and it's completely embedded in your psyche, and there's nothing you can do about it. So in some ways, it's a cop out. Like you have no more agency, right? You. Have been oppressed. And like one of the facilitators actually got mad at us for leaving and like not showing up. I think we went to one other event because there was free ice cream. And so he actually like came over, remember this very well. He like came over, got in our faces, and called us out. He's like, Hey, I didn't see you at the earlier session. Like, what are you doing here? Do you know how much our people ha- have struggled for you to be here and how much? you're disrespecting that and Mm. I just rolled my eyes like hey man I just want some ice cream like what What are you talking about you know like my parents came from another country and they barely had food to eat for a lot of their childhood so I I think I'm doing okay here and I don't you know we're all here to achieve and make something for ourselves I didn't say this but like that would be my more matured response at this point to say like yeah we live in this very prosperous country in a prosperous time and we have so many resources here you know why are we so fixated on the past and and all this negativity bizarre
0: i mean my personal thinking on it is that having exogenous factors that could potentially limit your your output or your achievement is a tantalizing prospect when there you know there are definitely times where i haven't lived up to you know done performed worse than I could have Whether it's a test at school or, you know, a sporting event where I stayed up the night before anything where I realized that I've done my best, or I have tried my best, but people, other people are better. In short failed in some aspect. Mm-hmm. Failure is not an easy thing to deal with or sit with, but if you have an out, if you say, oh, I'm a hypersensitive person, or, I'm a person of color or I'm a migrant, all of a sudden you can take that, you can take that jacket off. Yep. You can say, it's not my fault. It's something else's fault. And it's a sugar rush. It, you're instantly exonerated of any sort of personal failure, even if you don't really believe it. And perhaps that's why it's becoming more and more insidious is because if you don't really believe it, you all have to get in on the game. You have to try, try
1: twice as hard to believe in it. So that's my only personal thoughts on it yeah well there it, it is attractive because of the tribalism and because it gives you an excuse if you haven't achieved what you wanted and now i think there's a third strong incentive which is the financial one it's kind of this weird commissar system right it's a pipeline where like i you know i've seen these people you know go and do things after graduating And you start out at the struggle session, you come in as a a regular kid, but then now you're on this path where after you graduate, you can become head of DEI or head of ESG at a university or at a corporation, which pays quite well. You can make hundreds of thousands of dollars well above multiples above your median income of this country by playing this role in other organizations. So that's how it's. Metastasized. And you know, you layer on in addition to the financial stuff, the just the ego, right? Of saying, hey, I went to Brown, and you know, then you can go get a master's or a PhD. Therefore, I am a superior intellect, and I'm also a superior moral person relative mm. to you peasants here. So <laughs> I, you know, I am the Commissar, I'm basking in my my excellence and my morality. And, oh, but I'm also making far more than the average worker doing the actual job of a corporation, You know, a delivery person. I think I saw it the other day, like there's, there's now these commissars in the CIA or all branches of government, and they're making much more than your entry level analyst who's doing the real work. So all of these things have combined into this leviathan that's you know, very hard to, reverse because yeah. you've just got new people coming in every single year being being herded into this this pipeline and this path
0: and i totally get it you know like people respond to incentives is possibly rule number one of economics and thinking of you know in the process i'm trying to build something small on the side business wise and i think that i know that if it takes off i will i might not hire a DAI person but i'm definitely going to get the freelance, you know, the consultant to come in and do the session because I'm not buying, even if I don't believe it, what I'm buying is insurance in case. <laughs> Cause if I write something on, if I write something on Twitter and, you know, I come from a different culture and I sort of am a bit fast and loose with what I speak sometimes I don't want to be thrown under the bus. And if I am, I can always be like, well, actually I'm not. And neither is our company because we had. Rom D'Angelo coming last month and it <laughs> Candy, and they've signed off on us and we've, we're like FDA approved for like anti-racism and what's it, a few thousand dollars like I can live with you know rather than being accused of being a racist which is you think that's not me but maybe it is you know maybe you know even if having a you know because the thing is these things are almost like conspiracy theories there's always like an out you know yeah. it's like oh why didn't why why wasn't you know this major event? Why didn't the aliens come on the third of July? It's like, well, actually, it's the third of July next year, so we just got to keep playing the game. Or they did come, and it's you know it's all sort of um, all sort of a all very complicated. That's for sure. And yeah,
1: well, it um, is like become a real cottage industry. It's somewhat of yep. a shakedown, but you see the real life impacts of it everywhere. Uh, to give you an example, last time I was in Austin with you and, and the whole cohort went and had breakfast with a dear friend of mine from high school who is working for an energy company and he's in the process of taking this company public and they had to hire investment bankers. They had one European bank who they'd been working with for a long time, reject them because of ESG principles. So yeah, you know, this again, from a business perspective, why would you fire a customer that's paid you millions in fees? over a long period of time that makes no sense, but they did it. So, like, all right, let's go find another bank to run this IPO process. They went in and, and talked to Goldman. Well, Goldman for every company that they take public forces you to have two quote unquote diverse board members. So, you know, th- there's so many layers of economic damage that we're seeing here because it's not just the salaries that you pay to have the commissars and, you know, have your little seal of approval. You also are getting distracted from the core mission of running your business. That's a secondary. And yeah. when you extrapolate that to thousands of companies doing this over the world's largest economy, someone's got to you know do a thesis, an econ thesis of exactly what the real costs are, and they're probably staggering. So anyways, yeah. if you take this company public one day, hire me on the board. I'm not sure as an Asian, if I count as diverse, but if I don't, you know, I'll just change my pronouns real quick. And you'll be okay. Goldman can take you public.
0: My favorite term <laughs> recently has been the, a, re, a retooling of the term "gay for pay." Where there's been an explosion of bisexual applicants. As someone who's put in a few jobs, I might have been guilty
1: of that myself. Well, it's you can be the you can book. do the Elizabeth Warren playbook and yeah, you have your one thousandth exactly. percentage of Native American ancestry. Yeah, lots of different ways to to go at this, but. The game yeah, my point system. is it's it's just uh yeah it's just silly and it causes all sorts of economic and societal harm
0: <clears throat> yes i i think it is i'd love to re- we'll return to this conversation a bit later when we talk about you becoming going from student worker, and father sure i would love to one thing i find really interesting about the american experience is applying for college i think when we had our first meeting down at joe lonsdale thanks again for joe lonsdale for hosting us and uh sponsored by Palante. We talked about how the U.S. system of applications is unique, potentially exceptional, but certainly unique, um, and very different from what I experienced. And I can sort of see some value in this holistic viewpoint, but I can also see some weaknesses in it. So, talk me through your college application process, the sort of the stress you felt, and then maybe the cathartic moment when you got your got your letter in the mail.
1: Wow! So recalling some. Fun memories here. So, given that I, I had an American childhood but with Chinese characteristics, the expectation was always that you try to get into one of these IVs or you know, Ivy yeah. adjacent, Stanford, MIT, Duke, etc. So, yeah, and I applied to a lot of those schools. There's a lot of good competitive pressure. You know, I went to a public school, but it was pretty well ranked, top 10 percent of the class usually ended up at one of these top schools and they were the tip of the spear, like really hardworking, bright people. And they all went to these schools and have gone on to do pretty good things in the world. But yeah, it was pretty stressful. You gotta make sure that you you keep your grades high, you get good SATs, and then, you know, increasingly so, you have the more intangible stuff that colleges look for. You, You wanna be, captain of a sports team, or you want to show that you're excelling in a certain extracurriculars, or you have a a really unique interest that you've gotten quite good at, or you become a leader in. So in a nutshell, that's what a good applicant looks like. And, you know, the stats keep getting tougher every year. There's just more and more applications, more petition, more people from all over the world in the applicant pool. And so that's driven down the admissions rate steadily because the supply has not gone up right they can't build a whole lot of new dorms and make new space for more students so i think when i applied brown's admissions rate overall was maybe in the the low teens like 13 14 percent and now it's in the mid single digits like five or six percent they just announced uh, by email the new the new admitted class that is going to be coming in and then you know i i did actually see it from a couple different angles after i got in i guess given in the, the asian diaspora community anytime a kid gets into one of these schools then you have all of the parents in the grapevine starting to ask your parents about hey what's the secret yeah. like what did your what did your kid do how can my kid emulate this and get into that school so I started giving some advice on that front and you know there's there's also a cottage industry of advisors and counselors people yeah. who will be paid very high amounts especially in cities where you have very wealthy people like New York or San Francisco yeah. uh, and then you had the Varsity Blues scandal so there's definitely a lot of people operating in there who get paid probably thousands per student to work with them and guide them through an application cycle I also worked some odd jobs when i was on campus worked at you know making sandwiches at at one of the eateries on campus i did some kind of safety security stuff and then i also had a stint in the admissions office which was truly where the plumbing was i was taking all of these applications that were mailed in and filing them so i obviously wasn't in the room where they're reading the applications and making the decisions but You know, you'd see in the folders every once in a while, something would just be sitting there where you have like an officer writing some comments and eventually this giant room of tens of thousands of Manila folders would make its way into a big reject pile, like this maybe pile, the purgatory and then the accepted pile. So I saw some of that. And then I also became an alumni interviewer, which no longer happens. Unfortunately, another thing that COVID killed most of these schools try to have every student meet with an alumni and it's for mutual benefit. It's not like it's a very marginal thing where like, yeah, we'll write a report and we'll check a box saying, you know, this is an exceptional person. They should definitely get in, or this was good middle of the road and probably not a good fit for the school. So like on the margins, it might move somebody from a maybe pile to an in or an out who knows, but I think I was like over 30 in that (laughs) switch. goes to show how competitive it is.
0: It's a, it, it just seems like, I mean, one question I was wondering when you brought it up and it's a very good point is the varsity blues scandal. And what it blew me away is that people are willing to, I mean, you're an economics major, You spent a lot of time in finance and now in venture capital. Why are these degrees so valuable? Because it seems like people are overspending on them. You know, if you're spending millions on donations and then hundreds of thousands on access. And you, it's hard to see how that, and then at intuition board, et cetera, et cetera, the ROI doesn't seem to be there. It wouldn't beat the S&P 500. So there must be something
1: else there. So maybe expand on that as a hypothesis. It all comes down to status in the network. It's yep. truly become a luxury good, like someone would flaunt an Hermes Birken bag, as an example. Right? It's to say like, hey, I my kid is good enough for this and I am in this world. And then when you actually yeah. see what the world looks like on the inside, it's just so hilarious because you know, you, you've all been around long enough post-school where you can work with people. And you know, some of the best people I've worked with did not go to a name brand school. And some of the yeah. most obnoxious, ineffective people I've worked with went to some of these schools. And I think this gap might be actually getting worse over time because it's gotten so expensive. You know, Something's got to break. And the subjective parts of it are becoming even more important than the more objective parts, like standardized tests. A lot of schools are getting rid of standardized testing and with affirmative action ruling coming down the pike, I think a lot of these schools are already taking preventative measures to somehow keep that, but you know, not have it be overt or detectable.
0: Yeah. Well, I feel like the, I totally agree with the status argument. And I think that the thing with the Birkenberg is that it's almost like an instrumental status i mean it's indicates that you have enough money to afford it yeah. and this provides some form of status but they don't provide as much status as saying i went to brown
1: or i work at goldman mm-hmm. sachs because
0: you can't buy those
1: well well you can't buy <laughs> <It> depends <laughs> on how much you're willing to fork out exactly exactly yeah. you
0: know it's up there with like you can't buy a gold medal at the olympics you can't you know you can't buy a wonderful spouse although with all these things <laughs> there's elements where mo- money makes these things easier uh, but there's so much more status driving than potentially buying the burger bag or buying the ferrari which essentially you can we don't know if you've we don't know how you've got i mean we can insinuate that you've been some value added to the economy but um, mm-hmm. It's certainly more obfuscated than saying I'm so smart that I've been, you know, flown out to live. We've uh, delved into some dark topics. Tell me about the, uh, I mean, I think it's admissions week this week, at least in the UK, where people start getting their manila envelopes returned with their pluses or minus. Was that a, uh, you
1: know, was that a great moment when you got your offer or was it a? Uh... It was, or, or, yeah. Or, or, I mean, it, overall yeah. it was a, it was a happy moment. Yeah. I, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to get into several schools. And then you you know, you know have like a month, I think, after you get these acceptance letters to then yeah. decide which one you wanna to go to. And a lot of these schools have programs where you can go and visit campus with all the other students that got in and spend yeah. a day or two to really get to see what life is like. So yeah. I went to a few schools, including Brown, which I ultimately went to, and, you know, Brown's pretty famous for having a really well done program. It's called Doc A Day on College Hill. And cool. they really let you run loose. You know, we, I don't think we slept that 48 hours we were there, but I think we all appreciated that they were open. They weren't trying to make it any kind of North Korea propaganda. Like you got full access to everything. And I think that's the ethos yeah. of the school. Just like go explore, see what happens. And. I think that's what really sold me on going there. So, yeah. it was exciting to get in, it was ex- it was fun to go and and do these day or two trips to to different campuses and then yeah. you know, it's a tough decision, right? It's one of the biggest decisions you'll make. And yeah. these institutions also are so culturally different that for sure like if I had gone to a different school, I'd be a very person different person today. So yeah. I think I made the right choice. you know, made so many amazing friends when I was there and it continues to enrich my life in all sorts of unexpected ways. That's always
0: wonderful to hear. I'd now like to sort of look at the second half of uh, your time at Brown. You've decided to go into economics. You mm-hmm. think you have this, blame you, it's 2007. You yeah. Know, salaries go up, up, up. You get to be the young master of the world. <sighs> Lehman Brothers collapses yeah. and the world goes into turmoil. So some of our younger audience will be more aware of the 2008 financial crash as a historical event rather than a lived experience. So maybe you could put some bones on that story and tell us a little bit how that sort of shook up the economics department at Brown and your decision to continue to break, you know, face the oncoming tide of finance in a, quite a turbulent time.
1: Sure. It's somewhat of a treat to be a seasoned elder statesman in the group, usually have i've been used to being the other way around where i'm one of the youngest most inexperienced people in the room but yeah i mean i i can't say i fully lived through it because i was not a full time worker until 2009 after all the chaos had passed so i got a glimpse of it for a summer in 2008 and the the part i remember well is you you get to meet all the other kids in your class who are going down this route because all Mm -hmm. the The banks and consulting firms will come onto campus they'll be at the faculty club you'll get a free meal and you'll do the whole awkward networking thing where all the suits are are there and then you've got like a semicircle of 10 people trying to ask them and make a good question and make a good impression and then you dump your resume in there you get invited into interviews at the career center so you get to meet all the other classmates who are going through this this the salmon run. It's, it's a mad dash. Yeah. And there were much more smart and talented people than me got these internships, Lehman and Bear Stearns and came back to campus our senior year with nowhere to go. Like everyone yeah. didn't had froze all full-time recruiting. So it, it was just, it just struck me as such dumb luck. Like I, yeah. I no none of us were equipped to evaluate where we were going to intern as like whether they were exposed to too many toxic cdo's or assets where if there was any kind of contagion they would go down right these things just happen out of nowhere like obviously to to but to the people running them there's usually a long-running record of mismanagement and incompetence that leads to these things happening and we're now seeing i think another phase of this with the past couple months, like since we started, right? The first week when we were in Austin, we saw FTX go down. And then the second time around that time, we, we saw SVB go down. So what's next, right? Maybe we're cursed as a cohort. The third time we get together in in a couple months is Deutsche Bank still going to be around is uh, I mean, Credit Credit Suisse just vanished too. So, uh, I mean, the, the only takeaway from that was seeing it live was just how, how unfair And weird it is because we as interns didn't have a whole lot at stake, but all these companies Mm. had to let go of tens of thousands of workers, people with mortgages, people with families and through no fault of their own, right. They were just a street and the collateral damage was to main street was, was harsh too. So yeah, that, that was basically my historical accounting of, of what I saw.
0: So, but it sounds like a rough start, but it got better after that. And you, yeah, you the, these things always. Years,
1: yeah. yeah, I mean, these things always turn around eventually. We got the harsh end of that too because when we hit the desk in September of two thousand nine, they had underhired. Usually, they give ninety plus percent of their summer interns offers, and mm-hmm. most of them come back to to fill the trenches. But we were maybe a third of that, and there was so much work and activity that it all fall, it all rolled down to us sitting in the analyst bullpen. So it was pretty grueling. It's definitely the 80 hundred hour weeks that you just you just had to endure. It's uh, I've, uh, I've
0: one of the expressions, I'm not entirely too sure if I believe it or not. But I, I lean towards it is
1: that there's no such thing as a glamorous job. Is investment banking glamorous? No very few jobs are glamorous when you really think about it. investment banking analyst is one of the least glamorous. I think we did the, the hourly calculation. We weren't making that much more than minimum wage. So, you know, it's, it's, it's rough. I mean, maybe when you get to a senior level and you're flying around and you're mainly just hanging out with clients, like going golfing or to the masters, whatever it is, like that can be somewhat glamorous, but. I mean, every job I've done, like, you know, people think ventures get glamorous. It's really not day to day, you know, you're, you're just grinding and look, as long as you're learning something and you enjoy the people that you're working with and working for, and it's aligned with your values, you'll have a good time, but it's never like the glamorous stuff that you see on TV. Amazing. You talk about then leaving it to then go, is it to ZocDoc? Yeah. Do you rage quit or is this a planned exit? It was a mix. I had my eye actually on going to VC right afterwards, but I think when I talked to VCs at the time, I got good advice, which I'd give to anyone else out there. Before you go into VC, you should definitely work on the operating side of things. Work at startups because then you get to see what makes them tick and it gives you a lot more empathy with founders, which might be the most important thing. So yeah, you know, after talking to VCs, then I went and, and looked at startups that would would that I'd be excited to work at and so that's that's how i ended up over there
0: brilliant and then you spent a little bit of time in the uh in the healthcare space and obviously with healthcare related family american and he- american healthcare is a is two words which very few people struggle to like very few people don't have an opinion on those two words when combined together mm-hmm. um, where do you sort of see some of the strengths and some of the weaknesses of the American healthcare system is someone who's, li- who's been quite close to it in both the technical sense, in the research sense, so I guess, through your family. And as you said before, in the practical sense, in terms of your relatives who are physicians.
1: Wow. We could spend a whole couple of hours just on this topic, but I yep. will try to keep it concise. Well,
0: maybe what's uh, good and what's
1: bad. Yeah. Well, the incentives are, are very strange here. The analogy is that it'd be like if you were at a restaurant and the person who ordered the meal is different from the person who eats the meal is different from the person who pays for the meal so that in and of itself is is makes american healthcare very difficult you know a a lot of it just goes back to the individual well a lot one of the biggest problems i've seen in the healthcare system and, and the data shows this is you know, there's a segment of the population that is chronically ill, usually with preventative uh, things that you could prevent like obesity yeah. and our, our customers at Doc were health systems and they had all the data too, and it, it was, it was power law. It was 20% of the patient population drove 80% of all of the, the visits and you know, the, the revenue, the costs of the yeah. system. So. A lot of what I would, you know, if I were trying to improve overall healthcare in the country is to try to empower the individual more, incentivize the individual to take care of themselves with diet and exercise and better habits so that they don't have to go to the hospital. Because by the time you go to the hospital, something's already gone very wrong and there are all sorts of bad incentives in place to keep you going, whether it's from insurance companies or the health systems or big pharma, right? So try to, you know, we got to find ways to keep people in good health before they, they then pick up these chronic conditions that makes them dependent on you know, all these things to, to manage their lives.
0: It's so interesting. Cause like I live in Denver, Colorado, as many of our listeners know, I don't see any fat people walk around and maybe You live the in altitude. the fittest city in the, in the country. Yeah. And yeah. uh, when I go back to Australia, everyone asks me the same things. Does everyone have a gun and is everyone fat? <laughs> so I don't, America needs to have its like But you know that as Valerie says that we need to get the avocados from Mexico team to work on that. But I'd never seen anything like that until I went, I was fortunate enough to go to Disney World with my wife a couple of weeks ago. And that Happiest place a, on earth. That was the real America. And I didn't see any guts, but I definitely saw a lot of overweight people. Just wonder like what's why is it such an issue here? And as you, as you said, why are people why are people taking care of themselves? Is it a lack of self esteem? Is it a is it a cultural thing? I mean, I've got my own personal theories on it, but I'd be interested to hear why. I mean, it almost seems like a psychological or yeah. spiritual
1: problem to deal with first, rather than a technical solution. There are many factors that go into poor health, and I think you should include mental health in this too. But you know, as with all things. It's it's holistic. It's, it's all connected. I think yeah. one big problem is the just the the poor food that we have here. This is top of mind right now as the father of a one-year-old. My wife has gone into the mommy blog rabbit hole, and there's so many just jarring things that you pick up about how bad the food here is in America. Obviously, you've got fast food. Everyone knows about that, but just your average grocery store, most of the things that you buy, unless you're very careful, are not, you know, are, are full of pretty bad ingredients that in, yeah. in Europe and other countries, they actually ban. So I think that's, that's one big factor. Another factor is just a sedentary lifestyle and the lack of the ability to walk anywhere. Yeah, I lived before I moved out here to the suburbs, I was in New York for almost 15 years. And I would get 10,000 steps every day just by by going through my daily routine. So yeah, I've seen people actually lose weight solely by upping their step count over 10, 15,000 a day. So that makes a big difference. But we take for granted living in these denser cities that for most people, you have to get in the car to go anywhere. And when you get in the car, you're not walking. So your whole day could just be the only walking you do is to get in and out of your car, parking lot, and then, you know, your office or a grocery store. So it's, it's all very segmented and it's hard to do what our ancestors did, which is, you know, you get up and you move around. You're constantly in motion yeah. doing something physically. And then I think the last part of it is psychological and the more dangerous things that are coming in or that, you know, that... Obesity and being fat is is beautiful. Like you're you're beautiful at any size. and
0: yeah.
1: that that's a blatant lie. It's no no serious medical professional in our entire history could make that argument, but all of a sudden, we're now getting these messages saying it's fine. Like eat what you want, be you, and yeah. you're just gonna send people to an early grave if if you keep that mentality in place.
0: I, a idea that I sometimes consider is it's similar to what Gunnar talks about occasionally, one of our fellow Polaris fellows about this concept of pride. I remember reading in Jordan Peterson's book, where he talks about how often people will not fill prescriptions for themselves compared to how they'll, whether or not they'll fill prescriptions for their pets or for their children. And it, essentially the thesis of it was a lot of people treat others better than they treat themselves. And part of that is that they've lost a lot of respect for themselves, because they know, deeply, all their flaws are quite, you know, at the most intimate level possible. I thought that was a, uh, I don't know how if we can extrapolate that into what we just talked about, I fully believe what you've just talked about in terms of those like structural issues. But I also think, you know, it's if you're the only fat person in your friendship group, you're more likely to see an issue is if you're just one of one of thousands mm. i think i might have a a great segue is your baby just having a did i hear her on the uh yeah did you hear her over there yeah i yeah. just did hear it <laughs> um, I've recently got married and it's changed me but i don't imagine it's anywhere near as impactful as having kids so maybe we can expand onto this last you know, the last 15 minutes of our conversation you know talk about how hey, you met your wife getting married and then becoming a father?
1: Yeah, I, I met my wife, wow, almost 10 years ago. We got married late 2018, and then we had our, our daughter almost yeah. a year ago. So, I mean, flat out, it's the most amazing thing to bring a, a new life into the world. Can't recommend it enough. It's made me such a better person, and like really it's, it just, it's just not about you anymore. Right. And it's somewhat inspiring and liberating in a way because my only mission now is to give her the best possible life. And of course you go through the toil of poor nights of sleep, like last night, and probably racked up a thousand diaper changes at this point, but just having her smile and now start to giggle and and blab and and walk around now like that's all the reward I'll ever need in life so it's been a really special year just so fun to watch her develop every year and I, I can't wait to see the rest of it that's really cool
0: you know my wife and I know that point yet but hopefully soon it's one of the I mean one of the things that I'm the book I'm reading at the moment the end of the world is just beginning if anyone's uh looking for a book recommendation you have one okay uh, one Going of the, on the things list. that they one of the things they talk about he talks about as a major issue is the demographic collapse yeah of societies and we talk about the west all the time but the west is almost insulated particularly particularly in united states largely because of a huge amount of migration from latin america we can steal stay we're staying younger for longer here than other parts China, Mm -hmm. for example, is going to be older. The average Chinese person will be older than the average American in just a couple of years. You've had one child. I won't ask if you're thinking of having more. Feel free to share it. But I was one of three children growing up, and we were like a bigger family, but like totally normal. Now, Mm -hmm. if you say you have three kids, I assume you're from like a religious cult. Like, what do you (laughs) think? Maybe give some uh, thoughts on why... On this t- topic, because it seems to be the, uh, now that I'm aware of it, I just see it everywhere being like, when are we go- going to a, how big of an issue is this going to be running out of people? And what are the factors that are leading people to have so much less kids? And is there any, is there any way we can move the levers of power to change that?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm with Eli on this one. It is a, a massive crisis that we're only starting to realize what the ramifications are. I'd love to have more kids. I think a a lot of it just has to do with being blessed from above, you can't control for these things. And you you gain an appreciation for how precious life is. Most people, especially as they get older, will struggle. And we've seen lots of other friends and and couples have to deal with that. So it can take quite a toll. But yeah, I think in general, there's a deeper void if you go through life and, and you don't have married and you don't have children, and it, all the stats are pretty crazy, right? Like, I think in San Francisco, yeah. there are more pet dogs now than there are school aged children. And right, like what happens to a society if it no longer perpetuates itself, because you, you, you can only really keep yeah. that going if you create a new generation of people who then are raised in, in the culture and the values to continue them on. So, um, there, I, I mean, there are lots of good articles out there about ways to try to incentivize people to, mm-hmm. to value this more, but you know, the polling doesn't look great, right? People don't, if, if it's not a priority and people aren't thinking about this and planning ahead earlier in their twenties then if you really start to scramble in your 30s, then again, it just like biologically yeah. becomes much more difficult, number one, to start having children number two, to have more than the replacement rate of like, yeah. three, two and a bit. Yeah. yeah. And I actually read a, a, an incredible article this morning in the free press with know uh, UATX advisor, Barry Weiss. Um, yeah. There's a family in New York, the Dela Motz, And Interestingly enough, I heard of them previously because they're big on Instagram, apparently. It's a a family that has 10 children and they live in New York City, in Manhattan, uh, up in Harlem. And on Instagram, they're, they're all musicians. So they're all playing string instruments ages four all the way up to college. And like, you know, three is a lot. Having one, you realize how much work goes into one. And then you see people who have two or three that's still within the realm of normal, but yep. 10 just becomes absurd, right? Tim. And then to, to, on top of that, live in a, in an expensive, crazy city, like New York, that's really something, but the quote that uh, from the article that really hit home for me, I'll read it for, for you now from the father, Mark here, he says, we all have one appointment, which is death. You have to think, what are you leaving behind? a pile of money, a software program, Life and family is why we're here. And I think people are starting to wake up.
0: Well, hopefully they do wake up. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's it's just such a core of the human experience. We're all here because of many hundreds of generations of people struggling in much worse conditions than we currently live in. And yet they somehow managed to have a much higher fertility rate than we do currently across the West. So it, it is so weird where conditions have gotten better you'd think that would lead people to be you know more fertile and, and all that but instead it's the opposite and of course like you know education career factor into all this but you still can't ignore the core like that quote said like you know why why are we here and what's going to give us meaning and joy in life and I'm living it right now every single day it's just a huge endorphin rush to to have a baby and and cuddle her and, and give her kisses well, I
0: mean, I don't want this podcast to get canceled, but if it does, might be the best thing for it. I re- <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of like myths around these things. I can't speak of the child thing from experience, but the married thing. I read Charles Murray's book which, you know, that'll get me flagged on the algorithms. <laughs> and people talk about is this old meme was like oh, these guys are like never get married like not worth it ready right, ready right, right. It's a completely disconnected with looking at any data source. I mean, if you're not married, the chances of you self-reporting, having very high levels of life satisfaction, almost disappear. And there's you know also this cultural methods of, I mean, it's, we're so poor at predicting the future, which I guess is what makes your job so tough, Dave. When Reagan liberalized the divorce laws, everyone thought that wealthy people get divorced because they have the most financial capacity to buffer that shock. And it turns out the complete opposite has been true. We're nearing the end of our hour and I'm on the free program, so I'm going to have to dive straight into the, uh, into the rapid fire questions. Go for it. Uh, let me just pull them up. Here we go. Rapid fire time. What do people misunderstand about you the most?
1: Hmm. I can be quite blunt. And if I'm blunt with you, that means that I actually care about you and respect you and want you to know how I actually feel. Yep. I am a big believer in telling the truth, even if it's harsh. And, uh, you know, if, if I bullshit you, that means I actually don't like you. you know, I'll, I'll do to you as straight as I can.
0: Love that. Um, what's an insult that you've received that you're proud
1: of? <laughs> Maybe somewhat related to, to my last answer, right. Kind of be, I don't know, an asshole or insensitive, inconsiderate, whatever, but again, that that just goes by me. You know, life's too short, I think, to indulge in these pretty lies. I just try to tell it like it is. What was the best decade of the 20th century? It's got to be 80s or 90s. I wasn't even sentient for all the 80s, but yep. most of the time when I'm working, I'm jamming 80s music. I think that's when the Tax America and And the, this country, this, this culture was really at its best and hopefully we can, we can bring it back.
0: Which emotion do you feel less than the average person? Emotion that I feel less. Or experience less.
1: I think it's very trendy to be anxious these days. A lot of people just say they're, they're full of anxiety or they're, they're neurotic or worried about something. I don't feel much of that at all. The the baby helped I think, simplify a lot of life and keep you busy where you don't have time to get in your head about things, but yeah. I don't feel that much anxiety. I just embrace everything as it, as it comes. Are you worried about AI? Not very much. It's still in its incipient phases. It, it's always ironic to be in technology and to talk about AI because All of it still comes back to the human who is creating it and the human who is using it and the humans in the government who decide how it can be used. I think the human side is always what technology is all about. And it also presents the biggest danger. Any technology, whether it's TikTok or AI or even weaponry, is not dangerous in and of its own. It's only dangerous when bad humans decide to use it for bad things. So... Any of these things in and of themselves I'm never that worried about. It's always about you know what what's what's up in here in the head and what's here in the heart that that causes issues.
0: In twenty years' time, your daughter will celebrate her 21st birthday. What are
1: three <laughs> things you'd like to tell her? Man, it is really good. We prepare for her first birthday. I think at twenty-one I tell her. Number one, try to enjoy what you have. You know, don't get caught up in the rat race or comparing yourself or doing something just because it's popular or trendy with other people. Just do it for yourself, chart your own path. Second thing would be to, I guess to our earlier topic, find a, a good man, find a good person to bond with for the rest of your life. It's really important. And the third thing is just just have fun. I don't take everything so seriously. Thank you, Dave. That's gonna be our
0: episode. Thank you very much, Dave. He's an American, husband, father, <laughs> venture capitalist, and friend. If you listen to the UATX podcast, then hopefully we'll be back on the airs next week with another one of our great guests. Till then, I'm Harry Riddle. See ya. Thanks Harry.